If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open to Isaiah chapter 7. JT read earlier in our scripture reading for this morning the passage that we're going to be uh, working from. So I'm not going to read the, the entire passage over again, but I do want to go back again just to sort of recenter, refocus us on the, on the Word. Let me read a portion, say the first nine verses. So Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard in case it sounds different from yours. Now, it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Aramaeans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son share Yashuv, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted, because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands, and on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. In Hebrew, by the way, that you have two words that sum up God's response to this big, elaborate plan. It won't happen. It won't pass. In English, though, we read, uh, let's see, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now, within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you will not believe, you surely will not last. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that in your grace and kindness to us that you would use what is already um, a turn in our uh, calendar year in the holiday season, a turn towards Christmas to uh, draw our minds and our hearts to the meaning uh, behind this holiday that we celebrate, uh, that we would be reminded again uh, that when we think about Christmas, we are celebrating the incarnation, God made flesh for His people to save them from their sin. Help us to see in Isaiah 7 uh, the Christmas story in uh, something of a, a small model form that we can identify with and transpose onto the New Testament in such a way to give us a deeper appreciation for what we have in Jesus Christ. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Last week, we kicked off uh, a little three-week uh, Advent series with Isaiah 1, which JT preached. Isaiah 1 is not a typical passage that you would go to when you're thinking about Christmas because Isaiah 1 is a miserable chapter. Miserable. Isaiah 1, with a couple brief, with a couple brief exceptions, is just a litany, a running commentary on how sinful and rebellious and despicable God's people are. 
And yet in this running description of how sinful and rebellious God's people are, you have these brief moments where, where God in His mercy actually pauses and says, but now if you'll listen, if you'll come, you can be washed, you can be made clean, you can be renewed, you can be restored. And then He returns and He says, but you're a sinful, filthy people. There's a, there's a tension that runs through Isaiah chapter 1, and, and actually the first seven to ten chapters, actually probably more than that, there's a tension that runs through Isaiah where in classic form, Isaiah as a prophet, as the spokesman of the Lord, is unflinching in his description of how sinful God's people are and how much they deserve God's judgment and discipline. And yet, at the same time, he does not minimize or does not water down or make excuses for the fact that in spite of all of their sin and disobedience and rebellion, God remains faithful to His people and wants to extend mercy and compassion to them. That's sort of where we need to be in our minds and in our understanding when we come to this, this story in Isaiah chapter 7. If you have more time, or if we had more time, we could sort of do a quick uh, overview or run-through of the first six chapters of Isaiah, but we don't, so let me just do it this way. Isaiah 1 is a pretty miserable chapter because it's talking about the sin of the people. Isaiah 1 through 6 is, is for the most part, is pretty miserable all the way through. A couple brief snatches here or there about how there's some time in the distant future when God's going to do something new and different, and He's going he's to clean up all this mess, but by and large... The first six chapters of Isaiah are pretty bleak and pretty dark. In fact, even in Isaiah chapter 6, which if you have your college math, I, chapter 6 comes before chapter 7, which is where we are, right? So even in the previous chapter in chapter 6, when Isaiah is presumably called as a prophet, Isaiah has a vision of the Holy One on his throne. He responds, I will go. What is the message that I'm going to bring? And ultimately, the message, the call that God gives to Isaiah as a prophet is, Isaiah, you're just going to go and you're going to preach until judgment falls on my people. And then we move into chapter 7, and what we're seeing in chapter 7 is sort of a, a dramatic picture of all the sin and the pride and the rebellion that has been covered and addressed in chapters 1 through 6 in real-life circumstances. All right, so in the first two verses of chapter 7, what you have is basically the setting of the scene, which is you've got a divided kingdom, you've got Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and you've got Judah, which is the southern kingdom. Assyria, to the east, is an empire on the rise. And there are thoughts as to how we are going to withstand this growing Assyrian threat. And as politicians are wont to do, they think that there must be a political resolution to it. So, the northern, king, the northern kingdom makes an alliance with the nation of Aram, we, we think of Syria, basically says, we're going, to, we're going to come together, we're going to pull our resources to resist Assyria encroaching on our territory. And wouldn't it be nice if we had Judah who threw in with us? But Judah doesn't want to do that. They want to remain neutral and independent. 
And so verses 1 and 2 and what we have in the following verses is basically this two-kingdom alliance coming against Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, to conquer them and to force them into an alliance. And in doing so, they're going to try to conquer Jerusalem and remove Ahaz, who's the king, and put in a puppet king who will basically do whatever it is that they want to do. But of course, back in this day, if the... You, you don't make king by running elections, right? So if you're deposed as king, more often than not, you lose your seat on the throne and you also then end up losing your life. So what Ahaz knows is that if this alliance between Aram and Israel is successful, if they break into Jerusalem, if they conquer us, not only does that mean that they're going to have control of the empire, that means that they're going to have me. I'm, I'm dead. I'm gone. So the first two verses then basically is describing this picture in which Jerusalem and Jerusalem's king and the people of Judah are under the threat of death. But because of everything that we have in the first six chapters of Isaiah, you can't read, you can't come to Isaiah chapter 7 and think that the impending doom and gloom that sort of hangs over the city like a cloud is just an unfortunate turn of events. It's not. In 2 Kings chapter 16 and in 1 Chronicles, I think it's chapter 28, you can go on your own time and you can read and see how in a a historical accounting says the reason that all these things happened is because God was bringing about His discipline and His judgment on a sinful and rebellious people. Ahaz is an idolater. He has turned from the Lord. He is not wanting to walk in faith and obedience. He has multiplied the rampant idolatry in the southern kingdom creating and producing idols that can be scattered throughout the kingdom so that the people will follow in his patterns. Ahaz is a murderer. He kills his own children. He kills his own children as a ritualistic act in service to foreign gods, child sacrifice. He offers up his children in a burnt, a fire offering to placate non-existent gods. And Second Chronicles will go on to say, all of this just continues to unfold and continues to compound itself to such a degree that ultimately, under the rule and reign of Ahaz, there was an overall lack of restraint in the kingdom. Everyone is just doing whatever they want to do. That's why Ahaz and the people are under the threat of death. They're under the threat of judgment from God because of their sin. They deserve it. This is not an accident. This is God trying to wake His people up to the consequences of sin and rebellion. And the question is, what then will Ahaz do? Does God have His attention? When God speaks, when God intervenes, will Ahaz respond as he should in faith and obedience? So the scene opens up then with a picture 
of God's people under the threat of judgment. Which, if we pause just right here before we even go to verses 3 through 9, is essentially what the New Testament says of all of us. Now, for anyone who does not turn to find God in Christ, the wrath of God abides, hangs over Him. That for the disobedient and the rebellious, those who will not turn and repent, those who will not turn and acknowledge God to be God, that they are storing up wrath for themselves in a day of wrath. Judgment hangs over the earth. And it's that sort of picture, then, that we need to come to grips with when we read the rest of what unfolds in verses 3 and following. So you've got people who are, who are under the gloom of darkness and judgment that they deserve because of their sin, because of their disobedience. They have a ruler, they have a king who is turned from God, who is a murderer, his hands are covered in blood. The people are following willingly the leadership of this king. They don't deserve God's grace and mercy. And so it should come as something of a surprise or a shock when we turn to verses 3 through 9 that God actually takes the time to come and meet these people to call them to faith in the offer of salvation. Do you see that verse 3? Then the Lord, after they're, they're pinned in, after the threat has already shown up on their doorstep, when they're on the verge of being snuffed out, the Lord says, Isaiah, go talk to Ahaz and give him a message for me. Ahaz is not looking for God. Ahaz is not waiting to hear a message from the Lord. You, you get that? He's in this mess precisely because he has turned a deaf ear to the Lord. He's in this mess precisely because he wants to do it his way, and the weight and the burden of his sin and rebellion now is about to come crashing down on his head. Why should God even give him a thought at this point? But God, in, in the abundance of His kindness and mercy, says, Isaiah, go give Ahaz a word from me. Go make him an offer to be saved and delivered from the mess that he has created. Do you hear the grace and kindness of God in that? Listen, people, I don't care what your background is, right, what your home life was like, or what church you went to or anything like that, you understand, I mean, this is us prior to our conversion and being brought into union with Christ. The picture that is given in the New Testament, Paul most clearly, is that there is no one who is seeking for God. There is no one who is waiting to turn an ear and to listen. We are more than content, we are more than happy to go on our merry way, making life what we will and doing whatever it is that suits our fancy, and yet God in His mercy intervenes and puts Himself in the path of sinful, rebellious people to say, stop and listen.
It's already been said, even if this feels routine, even if this feels normal, what's happening this morning when we gather on Sunday morning, we're not here because life is normal for us. We're here because we were an Ahaz-type person that God dramatically interrupted, intervened in our situation so that we would hear a word, an offer of life, and by His grace and His mercy, we have been brought by faith to receive what we never deserve. We are not better than Ahaz. We are Ahaz. We are not better than the Old Testament Israel. We are them. Our heart and our nature, apart from Christ, apart from a miraculous work of God, is exactly like theirs is. And so God comes and He intervenes and He sends a message through His prophet to this rebellious king to say, if you will listen, there is a way out of this. But notice the way that the, that the message is given to him. He tells Isaiah to go and to meet with Ahaz, but to go with his son, Sher Yashuv. Okay? Like, take your son to work day. No, Dad, not again. Your work is so boring. All you ever do is talk. Right? So, so Isaiah comes to meet with the king, and he brings his kid, Sher Yashub, in, which on the face of it is odd. Any of you have a little footnote or a marginal reading on the kid's name? Okay. The name means a remnant will return. So Isaiah, take your son, a remnant will return, and go talk to Ahaz to tell him that I can save him from this disaster. Now, part of the, the little mystery in which this is going to work is he's going to deliver this message of salvation, of deliverance to Ahaz, all the while standing silently by his side is his son, a remnant will return. Which I think indicates this. What, you know what a remnant is, right? It's a, it's a part of the whole, okay? A remnant will return. If you're standing under threat of annihilation, the word that there's going to be a remnant that remains, on the one hand, can be a word of encouragement, right? Oh, they're not going to completely annihilate us. A remnant is going to remain. That's good. On the other hand, though, okay, but only a remnant is going to remain. So are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Optimist says, oh, a remnant, yes. Pessimist says, oh, a remnant. Here I think is what we're, we're seeing early on in this statement. I think that by bringing His Son along, a remnant will return, that God is indicating, although Ahaz probably is clueless, he probably is not going to pick up on this. But I think for us, what we're seeing and what we're to understand as the story continues to unfold is that God is saying this, Ahaz, judgment is certain to fall on my people, in no small part 
because of you and your sin as king. But, even though judgment is certain to fall on this sinful, wicked people, what is also certain is that I will provide a way of escape. I will provide salvation through judgment. Do you, you get that? Does that make sense? Judgment is going to fall. You, you will feel the brunt of these other nations. But these other nations ultimately are not in control. They're not going to have the final say. That, that's left to me, and I'm going to see to it that even when judgment is executed, my judgment is executed, that in that judgment being executed, that salvation still works its way in the midst of judgment. The only way that you can make that kind of an offer, the only way that you can say, I'm going to judge and I'm going to save at the same time, is that you have to be utterly, completely in control of everything that's happening. Which is what the Lord goes on to say. Ahaz, you don't need to worry about these, these two kingdoms. They're, they're smoldering little stubs. They're not, even, they're not even a match flame. They're just little glowing, warm things that are threatening to burn you. They're about to be snuffed out. They're here one minute and they're gone the next. They're nothing, Ahaz. You're fearful that these people are going to hold sway, that these nations, these kings are going to determine your fate and destiny. And I'm telling you, you don't have to worry about them. What you need to worry about, you need to worry not about where you stand with them. You need to worry about where you stand with me. Listen, hold your place here in Isaiah chapter 7. Go to, go to chapter 40. Just to make this point crystal clear, Isaiah chapter 40, pick up with me at verse 15. Listen to what the Lord says. The Lord says, Behold, the nations, that includes the kingdom of Israel, that includes the kingdom of Aram, that includes Assyria and Babylon. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Look at verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before Him. They are regarded by Him as less than nothing and meaningless. Verse 23, it is He, it is the Lord, who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, and He merely blows on them, and they are no more. You do not need to fear these external threats, Ahaz. They look like something to you. They feel like something to you. That's not what the real threat is, Ahaz. With a wave of my hand, I take all this away. 
Your issue is not how you stack up against them. Your issue is how you stack up and stand against me. Ahaz, judgment is going to fall, but salvation will come through judgment. I will judge the sin of my people, but I will see to it that a people comes through that judgment on the other side. And then here's the key. What, what is going to determine whether or not you get the judgment or whether or not you get the deliverance? Verse 9. It's, it's up to you, Ahaz. You decide. If you will not stand in faith, the last line of verse 9, if you will not believe, you will not last. That's it. There's a little play on words here that we, that we miss in English. The NIV actually does, does a pretty good job of getting at the word play. We would say something like, if you will not stand in faith, you will not stand at all. Right? Here's the predicament of human nature. Paul says that God has written His law on our hearts, that even when Gentiles do, by some sort of odd instinct, those things that are right, they're acknowledging the fact that they have some sense or some understanding that there is such a thing as right and wrong, as righteousness and unrighteousness. But the default position for humanity is to say, I will determine how I'm going to live, and I will set the standard and the mark for myself. If I get in trouble, I will find the way out. If I'm being assaulted, if I'm being oppressed, I will determine whether or not I deserve that. I will be the one who pushes back. I will be the one who refuses. I will be the one who accepts. It's all what we do, what we can muster up. And even for Ahaz here in chapter 7, the question is, okay, Ahaz, judgment is hanging over you by a thread. It is about to fall. What are you going to do to escape the judgment that rightly waits for you? If you try to figure out your way outside of this judgment that you deserve, that God has brought, you are not going to find a way of escape. You will not outrun God. If you try to create your own salvation, you will not find it. But if you turn and if you listen to what I'm saying to you, that I can save you, that I can be merciful, that I can be gracious, if you believe that, then you can find solid ground to stand on. You will not be swallowed up. Ahaz, if you believe, you will stand. If you do not believe, it's hopeless. Listen, people, the, the part of the deception that comes into the human, that is part of our human nature is that we, we judge so much of our destiny on what's happening in the here and now. 
right? If you're pretty comfortable right now, if life is good for you, you assume that life is good for you in the future. There is a sense in which Ahaz can say, oh, I'll live to see another day, and he will. And yet he'll live to see another day, all the while remaining under God's judgment, and that judgment just being suspended to fall on another day. You can't look at your situation, you can't look at your circumstances, you can't rely on your own resources, your own creativity as a way to assure yourself that you are good. Standing in faith means that you stand empty-handed before God and say, I have nothing to bring, I have nothing to commend myself to you except for the fact that I am throwing myself on your mercy and on your promises. You said that you will save anyone who comes to you, and that's the only thing I've got to go on. I believe that you'll make good on it. I've got nothing else. Anything else is just foolishness. And so after he calls Ahaz to respond in faith, even now, Ahaz, even at this last minute, there's an opportunity for you to escape this discipline, this judgment. Verse 10, God goes the extra mile, so to speak, extends even more kindness to Ahaz and says, now in order, so that, in order for you to know that you can trust that what I'm saying is true, I'm going to hand over to you a blank check. You ask me to do whatever is in your mind, whatever you can imagine. You make it as big or as small as you want, and I'll do it for you right now to show that you can trust my word and my promise. <coughs> Verse 10. Dramatic pause. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. That Ahaz, so spiritual. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Isaiah, that's not necessary. No, no. See, I know that back in the law, we're told, don't put the Lord your God to the test. No, 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 Isaiah. I, I could never do that. That's not the kind of person I am. Right? It sounds very pious, doesn't it? Very devout very religious, except that the Lord is not pleased with that response. Verse 13, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? What's, what's the problem? It's a, it's a good spiritual answer that Ahaz gave. I, I don't need to test God. No, I'll, I'll believe. Here's, here is how utterly deceitful the human heart is when it is wrapped up in sin. We, we have the ability to take spiritual truth 
and twist spiritual truth into an excuse to cover for our sin. The reason that Ahaz will not ask for a sign is because Ahaz doesn't want a sign. Ahaz has no intention of listening to what the Lord is saying. Ahaz has no intention of turning and repenting and putting his trust and his faith in the Lord's salvation. Ahaz is bent and determined to do it his own way. Oh, but how spiritual he's going to sound while he walks that self-reliant path. Guard your heart and your mind, Edgewood. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. There are many people, Jesus says, who at the end of the day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not do this? Did I not say that? And he'll say, I never knew you. There are many of us in this room who have rationalized and justified our sin and our lack of faith on biblical terms. You will not fool God. Every man's way seems right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs and judges the heart. And so, in spite of Ahaz's rebellion, his indication that he has no desire, no inclination to respond to the Word of the Lord, to submit, to find salvation in his God, the Lord says, fine, I'll give you a sign anyway. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Let me tell you what I think is going on here before we make the transition to how this shows up in the New Testament in Matthew. All right. The question is, in what way is this statement about a virgin conceiving and giving birth, in what way is this supposed to be a sign for Ahaz? Right? Here's a lot of discussion and debate. I'm not saying that I've got all this figured out. Here's what I think is going on. I think it's significant that when Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign, that the response is, in verse 13 a statement to the house of David. In other words, the statement now is not a singular to Ahaz, it's a plural to the dynasty of which Ahaz is a part. God is, as, it, as we may imagine, on the one hand speaking to Ahaz, but also speaking to the future as well. The fact that he can speak to future generations in the house of David is itself an indication that he is going to preserve and keep these people safe from harm, which is a way to confirm and convict Ahaz in his sin and disobedience. God shows himself to be faithful. You will not be the last one to sit on this throne, Ahaz. You'll have an heir and a descendant who comes after you, and they're going to see the faithfulness that I promised. But the other way that it works is that because of the fact that this child is going to be born, on the one hand, what Ahaz needs is not a child, 
Ahaz needs an army. Ahaz needs, needs weapons and materials for warfare. He, he doesn't need a baby. But the baby becomes something like a, a living, breathing calendar, so to speak, an hourglass. Ahaz, by the time this kid is old enough for this, by the time he's old enough for that, let me tell you what's going to happen. These people that you fear and dread so much, they're not even going to be on the scene anymore. They're a blip on the radar. And for a momentary threat that I am telling you that I can save you from, you are throwing your soul in the ash heap of history for something that's here today and gone tomorrow. And so Matthew picks up Isaiah 7.14. You want to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Ahaz should know that God is with his people. Ahaz should know that God is the one who, while bringing judgment, is also the one who brings salvation. It's all in His hands. If God is with His people, His people have nothing to fear if they'll simply put their trust in Him. Matthew chapter 1, start at verse 20. Joseph has found out that the woman that he's engaged to, Mary, is pregnant. When he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Quote, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. See, Isaiah 7, with all of the drama and the danger that Ahaz is experiencing, really is just a, a foreshadowing of what's going to come in the incarnation of Christ. God's people have always been under the threat of judgment. They've always been riddled with sin and guilt. They've never deserved God's mercy, and yet God repeatedly comes to His people to say, if you will turn, if you will listen to me, if you will stop striving and trying to do it yourself, if you will realize that you are not king and recognize me, I am with you to save you. And the greatest dramatic display of that comes in Matthew chapter 1 with a baby that is born to a virgin, supernaturally conceived, delivered, which is not just a symbol of God being with us, is literally God with us. The divine eternal Son takes on a human nature so that God in a way in which He never was in generations past is physically with His people for their good, to show them that He intends to save them and deliver them. 
He could have saved them. He's omnipotent. He's transcendent. He doesn't have to enter into this muck and this mire and this mess. He could have saved and done all of this from a distance, and he doesn't. He comes near. He condescends to a weak and broken people and literally becomes one with us. And he comes not just merely to save us from external temporary threats. He comes to save his people from their ultimate enemies, sin and death. All these other conflicts that we experience in this broken, mixed-up world, all of that is downstream, is derivative of what the real problem is, which is sin and the curse of death laying over this created order. God could give us a comfortable life if He so chose to do so. He could do that. But if He didn't take care of sin and death, all He's doing is tinkering around at the margins. He's not really dealing with the root problem. But Jesus comes to save His people, not from those who are hostile to them, their neighbors, but first and foremost, to save them from their sin. We desperately need God to save us from our sin. And Christ comes to become one of us so that judgment and salvation can happen at one and the same time. God is saying in the incarnation of His Son, when Jesus takes on flesh, listen, world, listen, population of rebels and God-haters, judgment is coming. Judgment will fall. But it need not fall on you. Here is a way of escape. This man, this one, will bring you to safety. You can be part of the remnant who is saved if you will turn and put your trust in Him. And then at the cross, what we see is God's judgment and salvation occurring at one and the same time. God's judgment falls on His Son to deal with the heinousness of human sin. God is just to punish sin and rebellion against Him. And yet, because that judgment and that sin is falling on His Son, it need not fall on the rest of His people. Salvation comes through judgment. And so here's what we get to celebrate. What we're celebrating is all of the things that we see in the New Testament about Jesus Christ being brought to fruition from all of this drama that we see in the Old Testament. Right? This group of people here, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you understand, you, you count as part of the remnant that has been saved from certain judgment. Right? Thousands upon thousands upon millions upon billions of people are standing under the certain judgment of God. But because God's judgment has fallen on His Son, this remnant here has been promised to be pardoned and saved from it. 
And that remnant there and this remnant, in local churches all across the country, all across the world, God has a people for Himself that He is calling out of certain doom and destruction. And the reason that we know that that is true, that His promise of ultimate deliverance and salvation is true, is because Jesus came. God is with us. That is something to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, how we need to be reminded that in and of ourselves we are no better than men like Ahaz. We are a wayward and fickle people when left to our own devices, so easily lured away by the passing temporary pleasures of sin. But you and your grace intervened in our lives. You gave us grace and mercy when we were not even looking for it. You called us to yourself through the voice of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And by simply placing our trust in Him, we can know for certain that the judgment that is certain to fall will not fall on us because it's already fallen on God, on Jesus, God in the flesh. Father, with that in mind, would you cause us to celebrate more deeply and intently this salvation, this grace in which we stand, that we would be reminded once again of why it is that we come back once again this time of year to celebrate the incarnation, to celebrate God with us. And we trust you for this through the power of your Spirit, because of your Son. Amen. Amen. Would you respond as we worship? Uh, would you stand as we respond to worship, uh, to worship and uh, to what we've heard uh, this, this morning? What hope is found this starlit night? A king is born in Bethlehem. Our journey long, we seek the light that leads to the hallowed manger ground. What fear we felt in the silent age, four hundred years can he be found, but broken by a baby's cry, rejoice in the hallowed manger ground. Son of God, here born to bleed, a crown of
of thorns would pierce his brow as we beheld this offering exalted now the king of kings praise god for the hallowed